ओम नमो भगवते श्री अरुणाचल रमनाय नमस्कार that is i get asked many questions in the comments on my uh youtube channel but i don't have time to reply to them all but i the more important ones i try to reply to during these meetings um and generally i give priority to ones that are related to the practice of self investigation because this is the core of bhagavan's teaching that's this is what bhagavan's teachings are all about um the the first um one i'm going to comment but i'm going to uh, answer today is one that was asked last month um uh what uh, someone wrote in one of the comments was uh the description of ramana's death experience at age 16 years is said to have taken about 20 minutes in which his body actually died I have not heard this interpretation before but as Michael James is an authority and went uh, mm-hmm. from the Tamil I would have to assume he is correct I would like to inquire as to how he arrived at this interpretation however if possible my reading of the english version is that he only pretended to be dying not in any way but he actually physically died also some seem to think that this is over in a matter of a few seconds not 20 minutes i would like to know if it was a flash of understanding in seconds or if it required 20 minutes or so of self investigation and how this was arrived at if possible um that that is the question the answer is 20 minutes re- relates to his body what happened so we need to distinguish what happened internally and what happened externally um internally when the fear of death came to him his attention spontaneously turned within and in a split second he merged back into his source because that i mean he means the ego but was aware of itself as i am being raman when confronted with that fear of death because it was a highly mature soul turns its attention back within towards itself to find out what is it that is dying yeah the body is dying but will i also die with the body um and because of the the keenness and intensity of the self attentiveness he's merged back into the source from which he had risen that he means the ego ego merged back into the source from which he, it had risen and that was the end of it that was uh, that was a, a, not even a, a few seconds it was not even a second it happened instantaneously because of the intensity with which he turned his attention within um as bhagavan explained on many occasions if you control the breath that's a means to restrain the mind and likewise if you control the mind that's a means to restrain the, the breath so when he turned his attention inwards with such intensity that automatically stopped the the um not only the mind but also the prana so his body became lifeless and was lying lifeless for 20 minutes until suddenly um uh life came back to the body 
that is by divine grace because that body had a mission to be the the Sadhguru, or to be the vehicle for the Sadhguru. Obviously, the body is not the Sadhguru. Bhagavan always made it clear, Guru is that which is shining in the heart of each one of us as our own being, I am. But our our own being, our own real nature, appears outwardly in the form of Guru in order to tell us to turn within. So Bhagavan is not the form that he seems to be. He's not the the person that he seems to be, but that person is the form in which he appeared in order to teach us the term within, to find the real form of guru, which is ever shining in our heart. That that is the the, the real form of guru. The swarupa of guru is atmasarupa, our own real nature, the real nature of ourselves. So what happened internally happened in instantaneously. The effect it had on the body um, lasted 20 minutes. Um, so there's no there's no conflict between these um, these two. It doesn't mean that he was doing self-investigation for 20 minutes. No, that all had that happened in us in, in an instant. The body happened to be lying lifeless for about 20 minutes until the life suddenly came back. Um, this is not just an interpretation. This is what I have heard from several old devotees. One thing um, I heard from Sadhu Om is in the later years of Bhagavan's life, in the last few years of Bhagavan's life, he often took opportunities to point out things that have been written in the, bio, in the biographies but were not correct. For instance, one day um, when Sadhu Om was present, Bhagavan said, um, though it is re- that is in in self-realization, the biography by Bhivan Narasimha Swami and the uh, Ramana Vijayam, which is a Tamil biography based on uh, self-realization, and in later biographies also, they write about Bhagavan's so-called second death experience. That is when that was about 16 years after this um, this death experience that happened in Madurai. Um, so when he was about 32 years old, he was he and Parani Swami had one day gone to uh, um, Durga, uh, Pachamankoil on the northeast um, corner of the hill. And they had gone there for a, they, they'd had an oil bath and um, and bathed in the, in the tank there. And while they were returning, as they were passing the tortoise rock, Bhagavan leaned against the tortoise rock, sat on or half sat on the tortoise rock, and his body suddenly became lifeless and started turning pale. And Parani Swami was, of course, um, uh, very much perturbed by this. So he embraced Bhagavan's lifeless body and he was weeping. And after about 15, 20 minutes, suddenly the life came back to Bhagavan's body. And Bhagavan said, Let, let's proceed. So this is this is an incident that actually happened. Um, it was reported by Parani Swami, but it was a well-known incident. I mean, after that, many people knew about this. So it was written in the biographies. But in the biographies, they referred to this as Bhagavan's second death experience. So one day, when there was talk about this in the hall, Bhagavan said, Though it is said to be the second death experience, it was not actually the second death experience. It was the last one. And then he said, after the first day that this happened, but that day when the 
um, in Madurai when that fear of death came to him and his body became lifeless for about 20 minutes. This His body uh, spontaneously becoming lifeless happened on, you know, on several occasions. Bhagavan didn't specify how many occasions, but it, it happened quite frequently between that that first death experience and the last one on uh, Ame Parai, on the tortoise rock, it happened um, It happened many times between that, but it just so happened that the only time it was noticed by anyone was that last time when Parani Swami noticed it. Um, so this is something that I heard from Sadhuam. Once when um, Sadhuam and I and one or two other friends were with uh, Swami Ananda, and we were talking about these things. And um, I, I mentioned that, um, that what Sadhuam had told me, but um, in the later years of his life, Bhagavan, not only this incident, but many incidents were incorrectly recorded in biographies. He, Bhagavan, took opportunities now and then to point out the inaccuracies. And Natanananda's comment on that is, yes, that is true. Bhagavan did uh, do so. But it is not that he never mentioned these things before. He said, those of us who were close to Bhagavan, he said, for example, I knew from the very early days, Natanananda, I think, had first come to Bhagavan in 1918, when Bhagavan was still in Skandashram. So Natanananda said, I knew from very early days when I came to Bhagavan, but... Um, this thing that he had, he had, up to the time when this uh, Ame Parai incident happened, it had happened to Bhagavan many times that his body had become lifeless, just as it had become lifeless on that first day. And then I told, um, I, I said to uh, Swami Nathananda, but in, none, in the English books, nobody, they just say Bhagavan enacted um, uh, uh, as if he had, uh, as if the body was dead, and he laughed and said, "No, no, that is what they write in the books, but that is just their understanding of it. That is not what Bhagavan said. Bhagavan, all Bhagavan said is, when that fear of death came, he lay down, stretching out his limbs, so his body was, uh, to all appearance, it was it was like a corpse. He wasn't, he didn't do it to enact death." What happened actually was his attention turned within and it uh, spontaneously merged back in its source because of the intensity with which it turned within. And um, I said, but it's not mentioned that he, the body actually died at that time. And he said, yes, I know it's not. He said, it's, um, he said he remembered when Ramana Vijayam was first published, there were many, Ramana Vijayam is a the Tamil biography of of. Bhagavan, written by Sudananda Bharati. It was published soon after Self-Realization, which was published in the early 1930s. Um, and it was based largely on uh, Self-Realization. Um, Swami Nathanananda didn't know English, or he knew very little English. So the first time he read a, a book-length biography of Bhagavan was Ramana Vijayam, and he found many inaccuracies in it. So he told, um, he pointed out to um, Sudananda Bharati, who had written it, um, that there were so many inaccuracies there, including things referring to Natanand, even some of those things weren't recorded so accurately. 
So when he pointed these out to um, Sudananda Bharati and asked him, where did you get all these versions from? Sudananda Bharati said, I based it on self-realization. And then um, when Nathanian said, but many of these are not correct details, um, he said, no, no, Bhagavan himself has read the proof of this book, so it must be uh, correct. How can you say it's wrong? So Nathananda said, because it had been, once it was written in books, people believed it. They thought, oh, Bhagavan had proof, has read the proof of these books, so it must be correct. But just because Bhagavan has read the proof doesn't mean it is correct. So Nathananda said, there were many things that we knew about, um, we heard Bhagavan telling about his life, but were um, not the same as in, but, but were quite different often to what, how it was recorded in various books. Um, but most people were going believe what's written in the books. He, but he said it is true, as, as Sadhuam says, but in the later years, Bhagavan made a point. Whenever the opportunity arose, he pointed out some of these inaccuracies. Um, so I heard that the fact that Bhagavan's body became lifeless at that time, that is something I heard from both from Sadhuam and Natalananda, both of whom heard it from Bhagavan. I also heard it from Kunju Swami and probably from a few other old devotees. So there's no doubt this is the case, though it isn't written in the book. So just because something is written in the books doesn't mean it is correct. Just because something is not written in the books doesn't mean it is not correct. Um, there's a whole oral tradition, which is often... Um, the, the, the books are often not consistent with the oral tradition. And in many cases, the oral tradition is more reliable because it was people like Nathanananda, Kunju Swami, and so on, who had lived many years with Bhagavan. Um, um, regarding um, the, well, how Bhagavan described his death experience is very important, but unfortunately in English books, it is not recorded very accurately. Um, <coughs> because that is in Tamil, when Bhagavan talks in Tamil, Tamil, Tamil is a language in which one can speak in a very impersonal way. So Bhagavan is able to... When Bhagavan described his death experience, he used the word I very little. Whereas in most of the uh, accounts in English books, it's as if Bhagavan said, I did this, I did that. So I think the most accurate um, wording of what Bhagavan, I mean, Bhagavan didn't say this just once. He, Bhagavan quite often referred to what happened. So Sadhuam has written in um in Ramanavari, that's the Tamil original of, of Partha Sri Ramana, Sadhuam wrote it as Bhagavan actually said it. Um, that is, obviously, Bhagavan said it on many occasions, but using the words that Bhagavan actually used when he was telling this. Um, so in the Partha Sri Ramana, most of the, part of the new edition of the Partha Sri Ramana is not translated by me, but some places particularly this uh, description of Bhagavan's death experience, I made a point of, uh, of, of revising the translation of that. So the trans this is my translation of how uh, Sadhuam recorded it in, um, in, uh, in Tamil. 
That is, what Bhagavan said is, when he was describing what happened, he said, all right, death has come. What is death? What is dying? This body is going to die. <coughs> Let it die. Resolving thus, closing the lips tightly, remaining like a corpse without speech and breath, when observed, what appeared clearly within was as follows. This body has died. Now it will be taken to the cremation ground and burnt. It will become ashes. All right, but with the destruction of this body, am I also destroyed? Is this body I? Although this body lies as a corpse, devoid of speech and breath, I certainly exist without being obstructed in the least by this death. My being continues to shine clearly without any obstruction. Though this body which dies, there, sorry, therefore this body which dies is not I. I am only the indestructible I. Among all things, I alone am the real substance. As for this body, it is subject to death. I, who transcend the body, am what lives eternally. Even this death that has come cannot touch me. Thus it shone plainly. With that, the fear, this, the fear of death that had risen in the beginning disappeared, never to return. All this was experienced only as a direct awareness, as pratyaksha, not mere thoughts. From that time, my uh, being awareness, satchit, which transcended the body, has always continued as the one single nature. Such, uh, uh, so that's Bhagavan's words. And Sadom goes on to say, such were his words. Though in later times, Bhagavan on many occasions gave us an account of the foregoing, he always insisted, all this happened in a split second as direct experience without any activity of mind or speech. Um, if you compare this wording with how it's worded in many books, you'll find very significant differences. For example, what Bhagavan actually said is, my, uh, my being continues to shine clearly without any obstruction. Whereas in many English books, it is recorded, but he, as if Bhagavan said, I felt the full per force of my personality within me. He wasn't talking about his personality. His personality is related to the person. That is not what Bhagavan, that is not what we actually are. He's talking about his existence, his being, what he actually is. And that is what will shine without any obstruction. So, the problem is when people record things, people record according to their understanding. So what Bhagavan said can be clearly understood only by only to be well, it can be understood by us to the extent that we've actually put into practice what he is talking about. So those who who recorded it saying the full I still felt the full force of my personality. Firstly, Bhagavan. Uh, when Bhagavan was used the word, uh, he used the word I very little in this account, because generally, as I say, in Tamil, you can talk in a very impersonal way. Um, and when he talked about I, he was referring to his real 
his existence, his being. So there's no I that felt his personality. What he's talking about is the shining of his own existence. I am, the pure I, not the I that is aware of this or that. So um, it's very important that we, that is, it's unfortunate that it hasn't been recorded more accurately in most of the books, because why Bhagavan narrated it in this way was in order to give us, in order to help us to understand what is the nature of self-investigation, how we are to, how self-investigation is nothing but turning our attention deep within. So this is what Bhagavan is describing here, the turning of his attention within. And when our attention turns within, if it turns within deeply enough, Ego is thereby destroyed, and what remains shining is Satchit, our own existence, our own being. Pure, pure, pure being, pure awareness is what shines uh, as I am then. Um, so I hope this um, helps to answer that question. So we shouldn't confuse what happened internally with what happened externally. What happened internally is the attention was turned within, and the mind merged forever in its source, was swallowed by the light of pure awareness, which alone shone thereafter. What happened externally is related to the body. Because of the intensity with which his attention was turned within, the body became lifeless for about 20 minutes. Um, Another thing I didn't mention, Bhagavan said, but when talking about the Amai Parai incident and other incidents, it also refers to this first time. Bhagavan said, but when the life came back to his body, it was like it 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 was like a um, a flash of that that is a a flash of energy moving from the right side to the left side, which resuscitated the heart, and the heart started beating. Something to that effect, Bhagavan described it. But of course, this is all describing what happened physically. That is not what really happened. What really happened is the turning of the attention inwards. It's only in our view that the body seems to exist. That is, uh, Bhagavan made it clear. Uh, the, the jnani is not a body. Bhagavan often used to say, jnana me jnani. Jnana me jnani means jnana alone is the jnani. Jnana means pure awareness. Jnani means what knows pure awareness. What can know pure awareness? Only pure awareness can know pure awareness. So as Bhagavan said, jnana alone is the jnani. So Bhagavan is nothing but jnana itself. He's pure awareness, pure being. He's satchit, satchitananda. So he's not what, it's only in our view that he seems to be a person, a body consisting of body and mind and so on. So we need to clearly uh, understand the distinction between what, what he actually is and what he appears to us to be. Oh, and one other thing about the, the, this question that I'm answering, um, the, the person wrote, I would like to know if it was a flash of understanding in seconds or if it required 20 minutes, 20 or so minutes of self-investigation. It did happen in a flash, but we we shouldn't think of it as a flash of understanding. It was more than a flash of understanding. It was a clarity. What flashed was that the clarity of pure awareness, 
That is, when we turn our attention within keenly enough and deeply enough, we will thereby be swallowed by pure awareness. So um, words can never describe it adequately, but to put it in words, the best we can say, it's like a flash of pure awareness or being swallowed by pure awareness. As Bhagavan says in verse... um, Verse 21 of Uludunapadu, he ends by saying, Unadal Khan, uh, becoming food is seeing. That is, we can know pure awareness only when we are swallowed by pure awareness. Um, and pure awareness obviously is what we actually are, but we can know what we actually are only by being what we actually are. As he says in verse 26 of Upadesh Undiya, Tanai iritle tanai aridlam. Uh, being oneself alone is knowing oneself because we can never know ourselves as an object. There are not two eyes, one eye to know another eye. We can know ourselves only by being ourselves because what we actually are is pure awareness. And awareness obviously always knows itself. The difference between pure awareness and the impure awareness we call ego or mind is pure awareness is not aware of anything other than itself. Whereas the nature of ego or mind Ego or mind is an awareness, but is aware of other things. So as ego or mind, we always seem to know, we know the semi-existence of other things. As pure awareness, we know nothing but the real existence of ourself alone. Um, So I hope this adequately answers that question. There are just a couple of short questions I wanted to answer, but they're also related to the practice of self-investigation. One person um, last month wrote a comment saying, um, when you don't attend to anything, are you attending to the self? No, we don't attend. That is, we need to attend to ourselves, not just cease attending to other things. If we cease attending to other things, the result will be sleep or some other state of manolaya. This is what they are, the yogis are trying, seeking to achieve. As um, Patanjali says in the um, in the second sutra of his Yoga Sutra, yoga's chitta vritti nirodaha. So the aim of that means yoga is the restraint or the curbing or the stopping of chitta vrittis or mental activity of thoughts, but merely stopping thinking. In other words, what thinking is attending to things other than ourselves. Merely stopping thinking will result only in a state of manolaya, as Bhagavan clarified. In order to achieve manonasa, manolaya is a temporary dissolution of mind, like sleep. But our aim is not manolaya, our aim is manonasa. And manonasa can't be brought about by pranayama or other yoga practices, as Bhagavan says in Nana. Manonasa can be brought about only by self-investigation. Um, so our Self-investigation means attending to ourself alone. So it's not merely withdrawing our attention from other things. Every night when we fall asleep, we cease attending to anything else, but we don't thereby know what we actually are. Um, so what we, what is necessary is not just withdrawing our attention from other things. What is necessary is for us to attend to ourselves. This is what Bhagavan clearly implies in verse 16 of Upadesha India, in which he says, Belid Vidyangale Vittu, 
that means leaving or letting go of external uh, phenomena. Manam tan oli uru ordele undipara unme unichiam undipara. That means the mind knowing its own form of light uh, is alone real awareness. So leaving external phenomena, this is an adverbial clause. That is referring to ceasing to attend to other things. Obviously, in order to attend exclusively to ourselves, we need to ascend, cease attending to other things. But we need not, as Bhagavan made it clear, we need not make any special effort to stop attending to other things. Or the only effort we need to make is the effort to attend to ourselves. To the extent to which we attend to ourselves, our attention will thereby be withdrawn from all other things. So we leave external phenomena by knowing our own form of light. Knowing our own form of light, mind knowing its own form of light, means the attention turning within to know the light of pure awareness that is ever shining as I am, which is the reality of mind or ego. So the, the main clause of this uh, sentence is, um, Manam tanoli uru ordele unme unichiam. That means the mind knowing its own form of light is alone real awareness. The mind knowing its own form of light is the subject of the sentence. Um, so that's the, that's the main point Bhagavan is emphasizing. Leaving external phenomena is just an adverbial clause. Because obviously, in order to focus our attention on exclusively on ourselves, well, focusing our attention exclusively on ourselves automatically results in our uh, uh, withdrawing our attention from all other things. So the main point is not merely withdrawing our attention from other things. We do that every night when we fall asleep. There's no big, uh, there's no big achievement. What is necessary is to attend only to ourselves. Um, this type of question that people often ask is because they don't really understand what is meant by self-attentiveness. And the reason many people find it difficult to understand what is meant by self-attentiveness is because we are so used to attending to objects. We want, when we're asked to attend to something, we're looking for some object to attend to. Obviously, we are not an object. But though we are not an object, one thing we all know clearly at all times is I am. We know our own existence. So all we are to attend to is to ourselves. So this is a this practice of self-investigation, it's an extremely simple practice, an extremely easy practice, also, as Bhagavan made clear. But it requires a certain subtlety of understanding. We need to, because it's a subtle practice. We need to have a subtle understanding. So we need to think carefully about what Bhagavan, we need to pay close attention to what Bhagavan says in his own original writings. And we need to think carefully about it to make sense of it, to understand it. Then it will be clear to us what he means by fixing our mind on ourselves, fixing our attention on ourselves. And that alone is the practice of self-investigation. So it's not merely a matter of withdrawing our attention from other things. What is most important, what is essential, obviously withdrawing our attention from other things is necessary, but it's not sufficient. What is what is necessary and sufficient is attending to ourselves. Because if we attend to ourselves, 
we don't need to bother about withdrawing our attention from other things because to the extent to which we attend to ourselves, our attention will automatically be withdrawn from other things. So this is why Bhagavan often said, what, for example, in the sixth paragraph of Nana, he says, However many thoughts arise, so what? In other words, we shouldn't be worried about thoughts. Whatever thoughts appear, to whom does it appear? We should, we should not be interested in thoughts. We should be interested in the one to whom the thoughts appear, namely ourselves. Um, so we are not to try and stop thinking. All we need to do is to attend to ourselves. If our attention is diverted away from ourselves, that is thinking. So whenever we notice that we're attending to other things, but we're thinking about other things, we just have to draw our attention back to ourselves. So we're not, we're not trying to fight thought. We're not trying to stop thoughts. We're trying just to attend to ourselves. Thoughts will stop automatically if we attend to ourselves. But if we try to stop the thoughts, then it's as Bhagavan said, it's one thought trying to stop another thought. It's not going to work. So what is essential, the practice Bhagavan has taught us is not stopping thoughts. The practice he has taught us is attending to ourselves. The stopping of thoughts is a byproduct. It will happen automatically to the extent to which we attend to ourselves. And then one other question I was also asked at the beginning of about a week ago, someone wrote this. Um, when you look within, where do you look? Um, again, this is this is the sort of question people ask when they haven't thought deeply about what Bhagavan means. Obviously, when we talk about looking within, that can mean different things in different contexts. For example, the term introspection literally means looking inside. But what most people take introspection to mean is looking is paying attention to your thoughts and feelings and emotions and whatever's going going on within the mind. That is not what Bhagavan is talking about. When Bhagavan says look within, he's talking about looking within in a much deeper sense. What out of that is everything, as he says in verse 16, he refers to Vishayas as Veli the Tamil word vidyam is a, a, a Tamil form of the Sanskrit word vishaya. Vishaya means objects or phenomena. Bhagavan in verse 16 refers to them as veli vishayangal, because all phenomena are external. But that includes not only, what he means by external phenomena is not only the physical objects of the world, everything within the mind, all phenomena of all kinds are external. They're extraneous to ourselves. They're objects. Whereas what we are trying to know is the reality of the subject. So thoughts, feelings, emotions, these attending to thoughts, feelings, emotions is looking outwards because these are external to ourselves. What is internal, what is inside in the deepest sense is only ourself. So when Bhagavan talks about looking within, what he means by looking within is attending to ourself. As, for example, he makes clear in um, Akshramla in verse 44, I think it is. I'll just check on the number. I think it's 44. Tirumbiyaham Dene. Um, yes, verse 44 of, um, of Akshramla, he says, Tirumbiyaham. Tirumbiyaham means turning within. Tane dinamaha kankan. 
daily see yourself with the inner eye. So the fact he's talking there in, in the adverbial clause about turning within and in the main clause about see yourself, what he that clearly indicates what he means by turning within or looking within is looking at ourselves, turning our attention back towards ourselves, away from all objects, away from all phenomena, back to the one to whom all those objects or phenomena appear. That's why Bhagavan often, when describing the practice, he often described it as investigating to whom all these appear. That doesn't mean that we have to ask the question to whom, but we need to consider to whom does everything appear? It appears only to me. So when he says investigate to whom it appears, he means investigate yourself, the one to whom it all appears. So when we look within, we look at ourself, at our own being, at that fundamental awareness I am. We're not looking at any objects. We're not looking in any place. We are looking within ourselves. So we're going beyond time and space. We're not just looking within the body or inside the mind. We're looking deep within ourselves, in our own being, what we ourselves actually are. So anyway, I hope that helps to answer that question. So um, are there any other questions that anyone would like to ask related to what I've been talking about or about any other subject? Uh, there are a few questions, Michael. Yes. Uh, the first one is, um, I have been reading The Happiness of Being and I'm finding it extremely helpful. I've just finished the mind chapter where you talk about using the thought I, I am, or I am I, to turn selfward, after which you would follow it to the source. Having listened to a previous satsang of yours, when you mentioned that some of the ideas in that book have been superseded during the last 20 years, so is this instruction still equally valid and what if anything would you caution us about in the book uh, i can't remember i mean the book by and large is is i think i by and large expressing things correctly it's just the way in which i explain things is um possibly more refined now than it was then because obviously over the years as we go deeper and deeper in the practice and think about Bhagavan's teachings more and more our understanding naturally gets refined and clarified. So I wouldn't, or now I wouldn't necessarily express things the same way I express them in the book. But generally, by and large, what I say in the book is it's, um, it's, it's pointing in the right direction. And ultimately, that's all any words, however refined our words may be, all words ultimately can do is point us in the right direction. So what is the direction in which all of Bhagavan's teachings are pointing us? They're pointing our attention back at ourselves. So that is what it's all ultimately about. Um, so in that respect, that book is it's fine. It, it, it may not be as refined as how I would express it now, but it, it, by and large, it's accurate. Regarding the thought I, we need to... Um, I can't remember how I expressed it in the book, but there are two way, things we need to understand about this. That is, in English books, there's often the word I thought, I hyphen thought is often used. Uh, in Tamil, the term Bhagavan used generally is nanenum ninebu or nanenum enum. That means the thought called I. The Sanskrit equivalent of that is ahambriti. 
which means I thought. Um, what Bhagavan means by the thought called I, or the I thought, is ego. That is, <clears throat> as Bhagavan said, everything other than our own real nature, other than Satchit, other than the pure existence, awareness that we actually are, everything else is a thought. Of all thoughts, the first thought to rise is the thought I. What he means by the thought I is ego. In fact, he says it explicitly in the eighth paragraph of um, of, of Nana, when talking about this subject, he says... Um, in one place, he says, um, he says, Manatikum Prananukum Piripidum Andre, the birthplace of the mind and of prana is one. And then he goes on to say, Nineve Manatin Sarupam, thought alone is the nature of the mind. Nanenum Nineve. Manatin mudal nenevu. The thought called I alone is the first thought of the mind. Aduve ahankaram. That alone is ego. So ego is nothing but this first thought I. Or as he often uh, describes it, the thought I am this body. What he means by the thought I am this body is the false awareness I am this body. That is, as ego, we are always aware of ourselves as a body. So Bhagavan often said, ego is nothing but the thought of a false awareness, I am this body. So when Bhagavan's talking about the thought I in that context, he's talking about ego. However, in the fifth paragraph of Nana, he's, he gives us a nice clue. But this is a particularly useful clue for people at the early stages of practice, when people people often find it difficult to understand what it means to attend to ourselves, which is why people ask questions like, um, if if uh, if you don't attend to anything, are you attending to yourself? No, obviously not. But because people these questions arise because people find it difficult to understand what it means just to attend to oneself. It's actually very clear and very simple. We all clearly know I. So attending to I is very simple, but because of the strong outward going tendency of the mind, it, it seems very something very elusive for many people. So for such people, Bhagavan gave a nice clue. He's, what he said in Tamil is, Nanan Andrew Kariti Kondirandalam Kuda what that means is, even if one goes on thinking, I, I, uh, it will, it will lead, it will take one and uh, to that and leave one in that place. That place means the heart. It, obviously, he, he's using the word place here metaphorically. Um, he says the heart is the previous sentence. He uh, he talked about the heart and he said, Aduve manatim piripidum. That alone is the birthplace of the mind. Birthplace means the source. So, uh, when, when he, what he's talking about here is if we think I, I, that will lead us back to our source, back to, uh, to our source is obviously the pure I, the real I, I, the pure I am. 
That is our source. Why he gave this clue is for people who find it difficult to attend to, who find it difficult to understand what it is to attend to I, he said, just go on thinking I, I. For example, it's, I think it's recorded in Day by Day, if I remember correctly. There was um, a family who uh, um, who used to come from Kampo, the, the Kana family. Um, and one day, Mrs. Kana asked Bhagavan, she told Bhagavan, Bhagavan, I'm a busy housewife. I've got a large family, um, a lot of people to take care of. Um, there's no time for me to do any meditation. What should I do? And Bhagavan said, whatever you are doing, go on thinking I, I, I. That's a very nice clue because whatever word we we say, every word in, in a language, if we know a language, every word in that language refers to something. So if we say apple, it, when we hear the word apple, it brings a certain object to our mind. If we hear a word um, uh, uh, table, it brings a certain object to our mind. If we hear a word road or tree or sea or whatever it is, whatever word is said, or a verb even, running, it brings a certain action to our mind. So every word, when we hear the word, it brings to our mind what that word refers to. So if we think I, it will bring to our mind what that word I refers to. What does the word I refer to? It refers only to ourselves. So this is an aid to help people to turn their attention back towards themselves and fix their attention on themselves. Bhagavan also said, um, but of all the names of God, the first and foremost name of God is either I or I am or am. That is the first person pronoun. That is the first name of God. So of all the names of God, if you, I mean, generally when people do Japa, they are on the path of bhakti. They do japa of the name of God. Well, according to Bhagavan, the first and foremost name of God is I, because God is what is shining in the heart of each one of us as I. So by 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 thinking I I, that's not just thinking of the word. We should also be thinking of what the word refers to. For example, if we think apple, 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 we're not just thinking of the word apple, we're thinking of what the word apple refers to. It's a certain fruit. So um, likewise, we should be thinking of, uh, we should be thinking I, and Bhagavan doesn't specify it here, but sometimes he clarifies when you, when you think I, I, you should think of what I refers to, namely yourself. So this is a, a very useful clue for those who at first find it difficult to um, to grasp what it is to attend just to I. Obviously, when Bhagavan says attend to I, he's not asking us just to attend to the word I. He's asking us to attend to what the word I refers to. When he says here, even if one goes on thinking I, I, he obviously means thinking the word, but we're thinking the word I in order to help us to fix our attention on what the word I refers to, namely ourself. Um, however, this is, a, this is useful as a preliminary practice, but if we want to go deeper in this practice, sooner or later we have to leave behind all words, which is why in Uludunapadu, in verse... Um, I can't remember 
um, I think, was it verse 28 or 29? Um, uh, no, um, verse 29, he says, uh, he begins by saying, um, not saying I by mouth. Though he specifies here by mouth, uh, the word by means mouth, it also means speech. So it can also imply not only physically saying I, but also by our mental speech. In other words, we shouldn't be without uttering the word I at all. That is, if we're going, in order to go deep within, we need to leave leave behind everything, including all words, thoughts, everything, in order to go deep within. So what he says in this verse is, not saying I by mouth, investigating by an inward-sinking mind, where one rises as I, alone is the path of knowledge. Instead, thinking not this, I am that, is an aid, is this investigation. What he implies by that is, thinking I am not this, meaning I'm not this body, I'm not this mind, and so on, neti neti, I am that, I am Brahman, uh, that is an aid, but is it investigation? The implication when he asks uh, mama, the implication is, no, it is not investigation. Merely thinking, I am not this body, I am that Brahman, Though that may be an aid, it's not investigation. The investigation is turning our, uh, investigating by an inward sinking mind where one rises as I. When he says where, what is the place from which we rise as I? We rise, that is ego, the adjunct conflated awareness, I am this body, rises from the pure I that we actually are. Um, so that is when he says investigating where the eye rises. That means investigating ourselves, the source from which we have risen as ego. So thinking I, I is a very good aid in the preliminary stages. But sooner or later, we have to leave aside all such aid and we need to go deep within. In order to go deep within, we need to cease not only cease uttering the word I by mouth, even cease thinking the word. We need to go, our whole attention needs to be on what the word I refers to, namely ourself. I, I hope that is an adequate answer to that question. Um, I think um, you had a um, you had a question, Kiran. Yes, Shalini, I'll, I'll ask it. Thank you. Namaskar, Michael. Can you? Namaskar. Uh, so, firstly, I apologize. I'll, I'll be taking a, a minute or two more to ask this question because I've been waiting for this moment for the last three days to ask you this. Okay. After that, uh, I wanted to. I, I just wanted to take a moment to express my gratitude for your uh, insightful expositions on Bhagwan's teachings, Michael. I've been attending these meetings for the past four years now, regularly, and your explanations have been invaluable to me. While I I do understand that Bhagwan deserves all the appreciation, yes. <laughs> I wanted to take a moment to personally thank you. So in, in, in my daily routine, apart, apart from my office work, 
I spend a significant amount of time listening to your YouTube videos. Most importantly, as as it is important, I try as much as it lies in my capacity to practice self attention. However, recently I found myself increasingly disturbed uh, by by the news of atrocities being committed on uh, Hindu temples, the act of demolishing temples, looting funds, and diverting them to build mosques and churches, along with the decisions to decisions of some governments to eradicate Hinduism. These have been deeply troubling, right? Until a few days, I managed to convince myself that Arunachalaya would take care of everything and my primary duty should be to attend to myself and get out of this mess. Because if if the beginning of Kali Yuga is like this, then I can't imagine how it would be a thousand years from now, right? So better to do what Bhagwan has asked to do and get out of this mess once and for all. This was the attitude I used to have. However, the challenge came in three days ago when I learned that the DMK government, this is the ruling government in Tirvannamalai, they have decided to use the temple funds of Arunachaleshwara to build a topping mall on the temple property itself. So if you you know the Raja Gopuram, the space next to that, they are yes. they took over that property and they are building a temple on that. They already started the construction. In this situation, I find it extremely difficult to remain indifferent. Though I understand that all this is happening because I I rose as ego, and if I yeah. disappear, all this will go along with me. And, but it is challenging to accept that such actions are being taken against one's uh, guru, Arunachaleshwara. The fact that there are people who have the heart to do this and not care is something, and, and, and I can't do anything about it, is unbearable. I'm, I'm, I'm torn between following Bhagwan's guidance to follow self-attention focus on self-attention and come out of this altogether for once. And at the same time, the urge to take action against these injustices. As, as a regular person leading an ordinary life, I feel even if I want to do anything, what can I do? Right? Okay. I, I'm grappling with this question of what Bhagwan, why Bhagwan allows such things to happen. Again, your perspective on this will, will actually help a lot, Michael. Thank you. In Nana, in the 15th um, paragraph, Bhagavan says, Prapanja Vishayangalil Adikamai Manate Vidakudadu. That means um, it is not appropriate to let one's mind dwell excessively on worldly matters. That is, so many injustices are, are happening in the world, not only in India. I mean, there are countries where there are wars, where there are where hospitals are being bombed, where children are dying, where terrible, terrible atrocities are being being committed by both sides and, and innocent people are, on both sides are suffering. This is just the nature of the world. During Bhagavan's lifetime, two great world wars happened. Um, the First World War was mainly confined to Europe. But the Second World War, it was spread Europe, Asia, throughout. I mean, it was really a world war. It was happening all over the place. So Bhagavan sat through all that unperturbed because whatever, as as uh, as Bhagavan often used to say, Avonarala al-Andri or Anubhamasayadu, that means except by his grace, not even an atom can move. 
whatever is happening in our life is happening in accordance with prarabdha. Prarabdha is the fruit of our past actions, but not just any random fruit of our past action. We have done so many actions in the past whose fruit we are yet to experience, we haven't yet experienced. Hopefully we never will experience if we are wise enough to get out of this trouble, out of this situation uh, soon enough. Um, but that means Bhagavan has, when Bhagavan allots our prarabdha, he has a huge um, uh, selection of fruits of past actions that he can allot to us. So whatever we experience in this lifetime is the fruit that Bhagavan has selected as being most conducive to turning our mind within. So perhaps these, these things are happening in order for you in order for you to strengthen your love to turn within. Because ultimately, Arunacha is not physical. Arunacha is what is shining in our heart as I. Though he appears outwardly in the form of a hill, but Bhagavan, if you if you pay close attention to what Bhagavan writes in Arunacha Stuti Panchakam, for example, he said, um, be saved by thinking of this great hill that shines in the heart as the destroyer of the soul. Um, in in the, um, in Arunacha Patikam, he says, um, I'll just get um, or to min we call O souls be saved Ulam adid Ulam adil Oli if we kali Arunama giriye be souls be saved thinking of this great uh, Arunagiri but uh, the killer of the soul who shines in the heart so is Aaron actually inside or outside? So long as our attention is going outside, he seems to be existing in the form of a hill. When our attention turns within, we see that he is what is ever shining in our heart as I. So but whatever things are happening outside, we should take them only as promptings given by Bhagavan for us to turn within. The world has always been an imperfect place. There have always been injustices, always there, there have been wars, um, there have been uh, famines, there have been, um, there have been um, pandemics, there's disease, there's old age, there's death, all these. This is the nature of samsara. So our aim is to, we, we are, when we are following Bhagavan's path, Bhagavan's path is the path of nivriti. That is, we're drawing back within. If we are concerning about ourselves about the state of the world, that is property. But even, however much we concern ourselves about the state of the world, can we change anything? As Bhagavan said, that which is never to happen will not happen in spite of any amount of effort. That which is to happen will not stop in spite of any amount of obstacle. So what can we do to stop anything, whatever is happening, it's happening. It's, it, nothing can be happening without his uh, consent. So he allows these things to happen. Sometimes he allows all bad actions are done because he allows the bad actions to be done. But 
Bhagavan's view is a very long-term view. If we are doing bad actions, he'll allow us to do the bad action, knowing that sooner or later we'll have, he will make us experience the fruit of those bad actions, and sooner or later we'll come to understand doing bad actions is is foolish. Um, we First, we need to start giving up our bad actions and doing good actions. But we need even to go beyond that. Even doing good actions ultimately is not good. What is good, as Bhagavan says um, in the end of that note to his mother, Ahalin monamai irake nandru. Therefore, being silent is good. And in the, the, um, in the final paragraph, of, um, I, I read to you what he said, but it's not appropriate to let the mind dwell excessively on worldly matters. He, why he says that is made clear in the last paragraph of Nana, in which he says, Tan erandal sakalamum erum. If oneself rises, everything rises. Tan adanginal sakalum adangum. If oneself subsides, everything subsides. And then he, very important sentence, evlo kevlo tandu nadikiromo, avlo kavlo nammayundu. That means, however, However, um, to to be to whatever extent sinking low we behave, to that extent there is goodness. So Bhagavan's definition of goodness is the extent to which we subside. So rather than rising up to try and uh, fight against the injustices in the world, what Bhagavan expects us to do is to turn back within and subside back into our own heart. It, that is, this sentence is a very difficult sentence to translate into English because we've got no exact equivalent of tandu. Tandu is an adverbial participle that literally means sinking low, subsiding, being humble. So Bhagavan expects us to subside more and more. How do we subside? By turning our attention within. So long as we are allowing our attention to go outwards, we are rising. So let us not be worried about Bhagavan. Cannot Arunachala take care of his own temple? He will, in fact, Arunachala, even Arunachala has renounced uh, taking care of his own temple. If you go to Arunachala temple, you will find behind the Mulastana, there's a Venugopal shrine. Why is that Venugopal shrine there? Venugopal is a Vishnu shrine. Why is that there? Because Arunachala is a Tyagi. He's a renunciate. So he, Arunachala, he has he handed over all the property of his all his property to uh, Vishnu to take care of. So actually, all the the deeds of Arunacheshwara Temple are in the name of Venugopal, not in the name of Arunacheshwara, because Arunacheshwara is like Bhagavan, doesn't want any possessions. So um, when Arunacheshwara himself has renounced all these things, that he's showing us the way. The way is renunciation is the only path to happiness. We cannot uh, we cannot find happiness in any of the things of the world only by giving up everything. And in order to give up everything, how do we give up everything? Bhagavan has shown the way clearly in verse twenty six of Uludunapadu. Ahande undayin anetamundahum. If ego comes into existence, everything comes into existence. Exactly what he's saying in this twentieth paragraph. 
ego comes into existence, everything comes into existence. If ego doesn't exist, everything doesn't exist. Ego itself is everything. So all the injustices, all the good in the world, all the bad in the world, everything is nothing but ego, because it all exists only in the view of ego. Then he concludes verse 26 by, of Ulaignapu by saying, Therefore, investigating what this is, is giving up everything. Investigating what this is means investigating what this ego is. And why is that giving up everything? Because if we investigate ego, ego will, as he said in the previous verse, it's sought, it takes flight. So if we investigate ourselves, we as ego will subside, and when we subside, everything will subside along with us. So if you want to solve all the problems of the world, the best way is to turn within. So yeah. The choice is yours. If you want to allow your mind to be agitated by all the wrong things that are happening in the world, that is not following Bhagavan's path. Bhagavan's path is turning back within. Who, to whom does all this agitation occur? So, so the so basically, the main problem here is myself. Of course, of course, <laughs> because you have risen, everything else has risen. And I attend to myself. I solve all the problems completely. Exactly, exactly. And and Michael, if that's okay, may I ask one last question? Yes. When when like uh, I spend most of my time, as much as it lies in my capacity, to attend to myself, right? Yes. And, like when I used to listen to your talks in the past, you, you used to tell that it's very easy, but the reason why you find it difficult is because you don't want it in the first place. Yes. You don't want it actually. and We don't want it enough. We, would, we don't want it enough. And I find it so true because sometimes when, when attending to myself, I come out of it and I can clearly see that I don't want to do it. Right? Yes, yes, yes. It's, it's not that I'm saying this, but I can I can actually see that I don't want to do it. I want to go to a movie. I want to go to talk to my friends. Any, any diversion. And I come back. And after that, again, I find that it's very difficult. I don't want to do this. Because, can... because as Bhagavan says, investigating what this ego is, is giving up everything. Until we are willing to give up everything, we will not be willing to investigate what this ego is. Yes, and I feel that I don't want to give up. That's what I, it, 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 it comes yes. in my experience when I attend to myself more and more. Yes, yes. And, but, and that's what, the first thing we learn about ourselves when we investigate ourselves is we don't actually want to know what we actually are because knowing what we actually are means giving up everything. We are not yet ready for that. But we need to persevere. We need to keep on trying because the love to turn within and to merge back in our source will grow to the extent to which we persevere in this practice. That is why Bhagavan emphasized the need for practice so much. Practice is absolutely essential. There's no, there's no substitute for practice. There's no other way. We have to just keep on trying. Yeah. So whatever happens, just subside, 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 subside. Exactly. We can say, we can summarize all of Bhagavan's teachings in one word, subside. That's what his teachings are all about. And how do we subside? Only by clinging, holding on to our own being. Yep, yep. Thank you. Thank you so much, Michael. Thank you. Okay, you're welcome.
the next question, Michael? Yes, yeah. yes. So the next question is, what was Bhagwan's view on the usefulness of sitting in meditation being as opposed to doing of self-inquiry? Thank you. <laughs> self-inquiry is not doing its being. It's not, we can't say as opposed to. That is, we always are. So there's no, nothing special about being. Being is our very nature. We can, there's never a moment when we are not. The problem is that we have risen as ego. So what he means by summa irapadu, just being, is ceasing to rise as ego. As he says in um, in Nana, in the, um, in the, um, towards the end of the sixth paragraph of Nana, he says, um, he defines what he means by summa irupadu, just, just being. Summa irupadavadu manate apmasarupatil leka sevade. That means um, uh, just being, what just being is, is um, um, yeah, what just being is, is only making the mind dissolve in Atmaswarupa. Atmaswarupa means the real nature of ourself, in other words, our own being. So we 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 can summa irapadu means ceasing to rise as ego, dissolving back into our source. And how to cease rising as ego? The nature of ego, as he makes clear in so many places, particularly in verse 25 of Aludanabdu, the nature of ego is to rise, stand, and flourish by attending to things other than itself, but to subside and dissolve back into its source by attending to itself. So how to just be? The only way to just be is to turn our attention within and to hold firmly onto our being. To the extent to which we are... We hold on to our being, in other words, to the extent to which we are self-attentive, to that extent we will subside and remain in the state of just being. So self-investigation is the means to just be. We cannot just be without self-investigation. If we just be without self-investigation, then that is results in manolaya. That is not what Bhagavan is talking about. Um, the, the, uh, the state of just being that Bhagavan is talking about is not the state of Manolaya, it's the state of Manonasa. Uh, in the, an article that I published this week on my blog, I go into this in great depth about this subject of, um, of when Bhagavan says that if, if one just exists, it will shine forth, that, that the light of, uh, of the Atma Jyoti, the light of self, will shine forth in the heart. Um, what he means by just be is not if we subside in layer, it means if we subside in nasa, and we can subside in nasa only by self-attentiveness. There are some people nowadays who say, oh, self-inquiry um, self self is not the real teaching of Ramana Maharshi. His highest teaching is just being. Uh, he taught self-investigation only as concession or something to that effect. There are people who say that. These are people who haven't understood Bhagavan's teachings at all. Because if they understood Bhagavan's teachings at all, they would know that the only way to just be, in the sense in which Bhagavan talks about just be, is 
to hold on to our own being. In other words, to be self-attentive. So self-investigation is itself just being. It's not doing, it's just being. Does that adequately answer? I don't know who asked the question, but does that adequately answer the question? Yes, thank you. Okay. Thank you, Michael. Uh, since there are no other questions come up, I'll just say one more thing. You said about sitting in meditation. There are many different types of meditation. Meditation simply means fixing your mind on something. Um, it means, basically, meditation means thinking. So, but it implies fixing the mind on something. There are so many different types of meditation because there are so many things we can fix on, our mind on. But the the really useful meditation, other types of meditation all have their own limited use. But if we if we are seeking eternal happiness, the only really the, the direct means is to meditate on nothing other than ourself. Because meditation on anything other than ourself is objective. We're attending to something else. Our aim is to know what we actually are, because only by knowing what we actually are can we subside and be what we actually are. So in order to know what we actually are, we need to attend to ourselves. Attending to something else cannot be a means to know what we actually are. It can be a means to know other things. It can be a means for maybe a means to purify the mind or whatever. But ultimately, whatever other path we may follow, ultimately we have to come to this non-dual path of self-attentiveness. Any path in which you're attending to something other than yourself, meditating on anything other than yourself, there's a duality. There's a subject and a, who is meditating and an object that is meditated upon. Whereas in self-attentiveness, there's no such duality because what we're meditating upon is ourself alone. So there's no two things in self-investigation. So self-investigation, self-attentiveness alone is the true Advaita Abhyasa, the true practice of Advaita. Because nowadays people use the word meditation um, without appreciating that there's no one thing called meditation. There's so many different types of meditation you can do because there's so many different objects that you can meditate upon. But here, this is not meditation on any object. This is meditation on the subject, the knower of all objects. So this is the ultimate meditation. And it is not necessary to sit because what is sitting is the body. What is to meditate is the mind. The mind is to go back within by attending to its own source, by attending to its fundamental awareness, I am. Thank you. So uh, the next one is, um, uh, yeah, oh, it's a repeat. Oh, okay, the one. Okay, the next one is, uh, does God allow certain vasanas to rise up to the surface in order for our prarabdha to unfold at a given moment? Um, yes, in a sense. But ultimately, as Bhagavan said, whatever is seen outside is only from within. When Bhagavan um, explained the cinema analogy that he often used for how the world is projected, he said that the... the, the in this analogy, the, the cinema reel, the film in the cinema reel, is an, uh, analogous to the vasanas. So whatever we see outside is a projection of our own vasanas. So 
all that we experience is a projection of our own vasanas. So which vasanas are allowed to appear as the external world, that's in that's controlled by Bhagavan because that all comes under prarabdha. But we are free either to attend to that or to attend to ourselves. So the ultimately the freedom we have is the freedom to turn within. Instead of turning within, if we turn outwards, then we've got freedom whether to attend to A or to B or to C or so which direction we allow our mind to go in when it's going outwards, we have freedom there. We don't have freedom to change what appears outside. That is, what is happening to us is entirely according to prarabdha. But where we allow our mind to go, what actions we allow our mind, speech, and body to do, that's in our uh, under our control. If we are wise, we will direct our attention back within, hold on to self-attentiveness, and thereby not allow our mind to go outwards to after this or that, then whatever happens externally is entirely according to Prarabdha. So this is very, very, that is how the, how our will and Prarabdha, how they work side by side. It's very, it's, it's very complicated. We need not understand in detail how this happens. What we need to understand is the principle. We, the freedom we have is the freedom either to allow our mind to go here or there or wherever we want it to go, or to turn it back within. The only wise use of our freedom is to turn our attention back within. Of course, if we're allowing our attention to go outwards, there is something for the better, something for the worse. So rather than allowing our mind to go after very worldly things, if we, so long as we're allowing our mind to go outwards, we should try to keep our mind dwelling on Bhagavan's teachings, uh, which will encourage us to turn back within. So we ha we do have freedom. That is, the vasanas come from the past, but whether we the vasanas are just inclinations, which inclinations we allow ourselves to be swayed by, is in our hands. That is where the freedom of will lies. Uh, this is the last question. Uh, is Deh Abhimana a Vishaya Vasana because it is our inclination to take this body to be I? Could you please elaborate what exactly Deh Abhimana is and how we can pulverize it? Okay. Um, Abhimana is a word for which we have, for which there's no adequate equivalent in English. Um, Abhimana implies both um, attachment and identification. So, Dehabhimana is the, that is, ego is Dehabhimana. Ego is a false awareness, I am this body. That is an Abhimana, it's a false identification. And of course, with identification comes attachment. If we're attached to something, uh, yeah, I mean, if we identify with something, then we're attached to it. So, we're, we're attached to this body. Taking this body to be I. So that is the, the Dehabhimana is the root of all other forms of Abhimana. Once Dehabhimana is there, then so many other Abhimanas come. I am I am Indian, I am 
French, I am German, I am English, I'm American, I'm South American, I'm Brazilian, I'm Chinese, I'm Japanese. All these identification with the nationality become because of identification with body. Identification with religion, likewise, I am a Hindu, I am a Muslim, I am a Jew, I'm a Jain, I'm a, a, a Sikh, I'm a, a, a Christian, I'm a Muslim, whatever it is, all these come because of a day habimana. Because, so the root of all abhimana, the root of all attachments and all identification is this fundamental identification, I am this body. That if we root out that fundamental identification, that fundamental abhimana, which is what is otherwise called ego, um, it, it that, that will re remove all forms of abhimana. Is it a vasana, you ask? That is all vasanas. Who, vasanas are inclinations. Whose inclinations are they? They're ego's inclinations. So the ego is, is what is called dehabhimana. So dehabhimana is not a vasana. It is, it is what has vasanas. That is, so long as we attach ourselves to this body, um, we who are attached to this body have so many vasanas. You could say, yes, we have an inclination to be attached to this body, yes. So in that sense, you can say it's an inclination. But generally, vasanas, when Bhagavan's talking about vasanas, he's talking about two types of vasanas, vishaya vasanas and sat vasana. Vishaya vasanas is the inclination to... Seek happiness in things other than ourselves, vishayas, objects, phenomena. Seek happiness in means to attend to and to um, go after things other than ourselves. Those are vishaya vasanas. Satvasana is the inclination to seek happiness in and therefore to attend only to our own being. Um, uh, so we, we now, because of, uh, from from because for so long we have been accustomed to seeking happiness outside, we have relatively strong vishaya vasanas, and our sat vasana is still not strong enough. So we can vasanas derive their strength from us. They have no strength of their own. Vasanas are strengthened to the extent to which we allow ourselves to be swayed by them. They're weakened to the extent to which we avoid being swayed by them. So if we want to strengthen the satvasana and to weaken the vishayavasanas, the only means is self-investigation. Holding on to our own being will strengthen the satvasana because we, we attend to our own being under the sway of the satvasana. So the more we attend to our own being, the more the satvasana is strengthened. The more the satvasana is strengthened, the more the vishayavasanas are thereby weakened. Because when we're attending to ourselves, we are we are uh, we 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 are thereby avoiding attending to other things. So we are not be allowing ourselves to be swayed by the vishaya vasanas, which are trying to take our attention away from ourselves. So to call the dehabimana vasana, in a way you can say, but it's not really a very helpful way of saying it. That is, we should understand dehabimana is ego. Ego is what has vasanas. The only really useful vasana. Is the, is the sat vasana, the vasana to go within. 
So long as we've got Vishaya Vasana, Vishaya Vasanas are classified as Subhavasanas and as Subhavasanas. Subhavasanas are agreeable Vasanas, Subhavasanas are disagreeable Vasanas. So obviously, so, so long as we've got Vishaya Vasanas, it's better to have Subhavasanas than as Subhavasanas. But ultimately, we need to go beyond all Vishaya Vasanas by cultivating the Sat Vasana, which we can do only by turning within more and more and more. Is that a clear answer to that question? I don't know who asked that question. Yeah, so the last question, oh no, there are more questions that have come in, sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, the next question is in Uladu Amnarpadu, um, uh, it says, can you clarify? Oh, yeah, he's asking. Uh -huh. In Uladu Narpadu, can you clarify the meaning of Ula Vidi Unarvu in Mangalam verse 1? Is Ula Vi Unarvu in Mangalam verse 1 the same as Sat Chitu in verse 24? Um, wait a second, I'll just get the verse. Um. Ulla uh, Unugu, I think, is what is being asked about. Unugu um, means awareness. Ulla means existing. So the literal meaning of Ulla Unugu is the existing awareness. That existing awareness is such it. Yes, yes. Though, though it's not an exact translation of, um, of such it, um, because Ulla is a is a, an adjectival participle, whereas uh, sat is a noun. But uh, the existing awareness is existence awareness. That is, such it means existence awareness. Ulonru means existing awareness. What is the that means implies the awareness that actually exists. The awareness that actually exists is only such it. So yes, in effect, they mean the same. The context in which this word comes is in the first sentence of this first Mangalam verse. Bhagavan says, Ulladu Alladu Ulla Unavu Ullado. That means if what exists were not, would existing awareness exist? That is, we all know we're aware. And um, there couldn't be this awareness if there were not that which exists. In in um in verse uh twenty-three of Upadesha Undia, he makes this very clear. Um what he says in it's a, a very uh, simple argument he gives here in verse 23 of Upadesha Undia. He says, um uh Uladu Unara Unavu Verin Mayin. Uladu unavahum. That means um, because of the non-existence of any other awareness to know Uladu, to know what exists, what exists is awareness. That is, if if awareness were something other than what exists, it would be a non-existent awareness, and obviously it couldn't know awareness, it couldn't know what exists if it's non-existent. 
uh, so but um the the awareness that knows what is is itself what is so what is is awareness so but why why he when he says if it were not for awareness would the existing awareness exist he 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 implies that the existing awareness is itself uh, what actually exists So I, I asked the question, can I... Um, yes, yes, certainly. Yeah, so, so then that means in the first Mangalan verse, then Ullado and Ullavonarvo is the same thing then? Yes, yes. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Mm, yeah. It's not a thing, of course, but... It is not a thing. Ullado means what exists or the existing... Uh, yeah, 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 what exists. And uh, Ulla Unubu means the, uh, the awareness that exists. So the awareness that exists is alone what actually exists. As Bhagavan says in um, in the first sentence of the seventh paragraph of Nana, Yatatamai Ulladu Apmasarupamondre. What actually exists is only Apmasarupa. Abhmasarupa means the real nature of ourself. That is such it. That is pure awareness. So awareness is what alone what actually exists. When I, I read the, the, the first sentence of verse 23 of uh, Upadesha Undia, in which he says, because of the non-existence of uh, any other awareness, to be aware of what exists, what exists is awareness. Then he ends by saying, Unavei namai ullam. Awareness alone exists as we. So what actually exists is awareness, and that awareness is ourself. So in other words, we alone are what actually exists. Not we as this person, but we as the pure awareness that we actually are. Is that clear? Yeah, thank you. Okay. Yeah, the next question is, how do we ensure that our love for Bhagwan and his teachings does not turn into an unhealthy attachment which may impede us on the path? For instance, where we ignore other forms of truth or we believe our method and guru to be superior to others. I have observed aspects of Vedanta to be quite tribal and something I don't want to get caught up in. If we are following Bhagavan's path, Bhagavan's path is about going within. There, there can be no tribal going within. Yes, of course, there are different... Vedanta is based upon the Upanishads. The Upanishads are like a mother, but give different food to children of different ages. That is, the, the food that is appropriate for their adult child will not be appropriate for the infant. So the mother gives the appropriate food for the child. So the Upanishads give room to be in, for them to be interpreted in so many different ways. That's why there are so many different interpretations of Vedanta. There's Advaita, Vishistha Advaita, Veda Veda. Um, Chintya Beda Beda, uh, Dvaita, Suddha Dvaita, um, Dvaita Dvaita, so many different interpretations of Vedanta are there. Of 
according to the maturity of the mind, that say, as Bhagavan said, according to the maturity of the purity of the mind, the same teachings will reflect in different ways. So why are there so many different interpretations of Vedanta? It's appropriate that there are so many different interpretations, but different interpretations suit people at different levels of spiritual development. So we are we are not here to quarrel with others. Bhagavan makes that very clear in verses two and three of um Uludu Napadu, in which he says, um, I mean, he, he's referring to the, just, just this sort of, um, this type of um, tribal um, um, uh, disputes between different interpretation. He, he, in verse two, he says, each re religion in, initially accepts three fundamentals, that is world, soul, and God. Contending only one fundamental stands as the three fundamentals. Three fundamentals are always actually three fundamentals. That's two different points of view he's talking about there. It's only so long as ego exists. I perishing, standing in the state of oneself is best. So that is all disputes, all philosophical disputes are there only for ego. That is not what Uludunapu is about. That is what Bhagavan teaches us in Uludunapu, is the highest Advaita. But we are not to go and tell this to others who are, who are not yet ready for this. Um, we need to be, I mean, we all make mistakes sometimes. As probably many of you are aware, I made a mistake in talking with someone um, uh, last month, someone who wasn't yet ready for this. That's fine. I mean, we 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 shouldn't try to push the the highest teachings on those who are not yet ready for them. So, um, I took part in a discussion because I was invited to. It was probably an error of my of judgment on my part to 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 try to point out the deeper teachings of Bhagavan because the person I was speaking to obviously wasn't ready to accept that. So. It would, it, it, there's no point in trying to uh, quarrel with others. I mean, Bhagavan's teachings are not for debating. I, 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 I'm not good at debating because it, debating doesn't interest me. If, if people want to accept Bhagavan's teachings and ask me about them, I can explain. But if people don't want to expect, accept Bhagavan's teachings, I'm not one to try and persuade them. So I'm not good at debating. So anyway, but why I say that is, that is not what Bhagavan's teachings are about. So if others have other views, let them have whatever view they want. We shouldn't try and disturb. But in Gita, Krishna says, one should not uh, disturb the faith of those who have attachment to karmas. So everyone is at their own level. We should allow them to be at their own level. That's so. That's what he says in verse two. All these disputes are only so long as ego exists. I perishing. That is ego perishing. Being in the state of in our real state, that is best. And then in the next verse, verse three, he says, um, "What is the use of disputing? The world is real, an unreal appearance." The world is sentient, it is not. The world is happiness, it is not. Leaving the world and investigating oneself, one and two ceasing. One and two ceasing implies going beyond duality and non-duality. Uh, that, uh, that state in which I has perished is agreeable to all. <coughs> so what Bhagavan implies in both of these verses 
is that we are not here to quarrel with others. Others will have different views. Let them have the, the, whatever they believe is appropriate for them at their stage of spiritual development. That's fine. That need not concern us. Bhagavan's path is an inward path. Bhagavan's path is all about investigating and thereby eradicating this ego. That is what it's all about. So just to make that clear, Bhagavan put these two verses right at the beginning to, to make us understand we are not here to dispute with others. Let others believe whatever they want to believe. Uh, because whatever they want to believe is what's appropriate for them at this stage of their in their, I mean, we're all on a spiritual journey. At different stages on the spiritual journey, different beliefs are appropriate. So once we've come to Bhagavan's path, this is an inward path. We are about looking within. So we are not about being tribal. We are about this is a this is a solitary path. We can't. Um, some people do group meditations or guided meditations. This is completely contrary to Bhagavan. I mean, completely. Um, alien to Bhagavan's teachings, because Bhagavan's teachings are about going back within. Nobody can guide you to go within. So we don't need any guided meditation. And we can't go within as a group. We can go each, we, it's up to each one of us to turn our attention within and to subside back in our own heart. So there is, of course, there's tribalism in, in Vedanta, as in it's human nature. And so, and different people have different views. Let them all have, let not be concerned about others' views. Let us try to understand what Bhagavan has taught us and follow the path he has taught us, which is an inward going path. If we're following his path, there's no danger of getting caught up in disputes. If we get caught up in disputes, it's because we've allowed our mind to go outwards. That is the mistake that Bhagavan is trying to uh, safeguard us against. So I hope that answers that question adequately. There are two more questions. Um, one is, uh, tomorrow is Diwali. Um, would, um, could you speak about Diwali's significance in the context of Bhagwan's teachings? Thank you. Uh, yes, um, Bhagwan has written some verses on that. We're saying, let me... Just get the verses. Bhagavan wrote two verses explaining the significance of um, of uh, Deepwali. Deepwali is the festival uh, that celebrates the conquest of Narakasura. Narakasura was a demon called Naraka. Um, who, uh, who, who was killed by Vishnu. And um, uh, the Deepavali, Deepavali means the series of lights. So the, the lights that are lit to celebrate the victory of, um, of, uh, of uh, Narayana, Vishnu, his victory over Naraka, over the demon Naraka. In other words, it's the classic uh, story of... Uh, the conquest of uh, evil by good. Um, that, that's what it uh, symbolizes in a, in a normal sense. Bhagavan gave a deeper point, to explain the same thing, but in a deeper way. Um, in the first verse, he says, uh, Naraku Udal Nan uh, are uh, Naraku Ulahu Alum Narakan 
Engu Andrew uh, Usai Nyana Tihi Rial Narakane Kondraban Naranan Andre Naraka Chaturdasi Nal Dinam Ame. What that means is he who killed uh, Narakan uh, with the discus of knowledge, investigating where is Narakan who rules the uh, world of hell as this he the hellish body is I, is Naranan. Naranan means Narayanan, Vishnu, Lord Vishnu. That day is the holy day of Naraka Chaturdasi. So what he, what, what Bhagavan is implying here is that Narakan, the demon Narakan, is ego, who rules the world of hell, that is, uh, uh, as this hellish body is I. That is, ego is the false awareness, I am this body. That false awareness is, uh, is, um, is ego, and that is what Bhagavan is referring to here as Narakan. So how can we get rid of this Narakan called, called ego? We can get rid of it, only by investigating, well, here he says investigating where it is. In other words, investigating, um, investigating what it is, or investigating the source from which it appears. Um, and and he says the the it, uh, but it, it rules the Naraka Ulahu means um, the the world of Naraka. Which is uh, hell. Uh, that is Nar Naraka also Narakam also means hell. Um, that is place ruled by this Naraka Sora. So so long as we identify this body as I, we make life a hell for ourselves. So we we are flourishing in this hell-like world because we are now identified with this body as I. So we are the demon Naraka. To get rid of this demon Naraka, we need to investigate. Where is this ego? That is, as Bhagavan says, if we seek ego, that means if we seek the reality of ego, it will take flight. So if we investigate this ego, this this demon ego, uh, it will it will thereby uh, take flight, and that's how we kill this ego, how we eradicate ego. So the one who has destroyed ego, the implication is the one who has destroyed ego. He alone, well, that did he or she alone, that's beyond gender, obviously, um, because uh, gender is only for the body, and it's only ego that takes the body to be I. So, uh, but Bhagavan says here, he who, um, but he, he is obviously a, a gender free he, he here, he who has killed Narakan, you know, he who has killed the ego of the discus of knowledge alone is Narayanan. And then the next verse, he uh, he says, "Naraka uru am nadale udal graham aham enave keta narakan am ma pavye nadi mindu tanai oli olidal deepavali am teli." What that means is, shining as oneself. In, um, right, I think better to put it this way: investigating and killing the great sinner who is Narakan, 
who was downfallen as the illusory body abode, which is the form of hell, is I, thereby shining as I is Deepawali. So sh shining, uh, sh shining as, as we actually are, uh, having destroyed, the implication is shining as we actually are, having investigated and thereby eradicated ego, that shining is Deepawali. Deepawali means the series of lights. Uh, that are lit on Deepawali Day. Um, so that the, the, the lights that are lit on Deepawali Day, that represent the shining forth of our real nature when we investigate ego and thereby eradicate it. When we investigate ego, we will thereby shine forth as what we always actually are, namely the pure awareness I am. That shining is what is... Uh, is what is represented as Deepawali. Um, so that is what Bhagavan explained to us about the significance of Deepawali. That is, whatever Bhagavan is asked to explain the significance of, he will always connect it back with this central subject, which is the subject of self-investigation. Because self-investigation alone is the solution to all the problems. So that Ego is the source of all evil, and to get rid of that, that evil, the only way is to investigate it and see the underlying reality, which is the ultimate good, namely the pure awareness I am. I hope that adequately answered that question. That's Bhagavan's answer, so uh, it can't be better than that. Says, um, did Bhagwan have a sense of being located in the human body, and what was his advice about dealing with pain? A sense of being. What do we mean by a sense of being? We are all clearly aware. I am. Bhagwan is himself that pure awareness. I am. He is the awareness of being. He is such it. The body exists only in the view of ego. So for Bhagavan, there's no ego and therefore no body, no world, nothing. However, because we identify ourselves as a body, it was necessary for him to appear outwardly in the form of a body to tell us to turn within. But though he appeared in the form of that body, that body is not what he actually is. And was he at least aware of that body? Well, yes, so long as we see him as a something other than ourselves, he seems to have been aware of the body. He answered questions and um, he, he wrote poetry and uh, did all sorts of things. So he, to all outward purposes, he appears to be a person just like us. But there's a verse in Uladunapaduanabandam in which he says, but uh, he, he says, uh, just like a, a person sleeping in a bullock cart is not aware whether the cart is moving or standing still, or unyoked, whether the, the bullocks have been unyoked. Just like that, the jnani is unaware of the activity, the uh, nishta and the uh, uh, sleep of the body. So, though Bhagavan seems to us to be in the body, he is that pure awareness which is, uh, which is beyond all awareness of the body. So it's only in our view that he seems to be aware of the body. In his view, what he's aware of is the only thing that actually exists, which is I am. 
And that same I am, what Bhagavan is alone aware of, I mean, what Bhagavan is, he's aware of nothing other than that. That is what we see as all this. So what we see as, as many, he sees as one. Which one? He sees it as himself. He is the one. So we, we see we see him as all this multiplicity. He sees himself as one. So we cannot under, adequately understand the state of... Uh, there's a verse in, um, in Uludunapadu in which he says... Um, uh, Verse, sorry, verse 31. For those who are happiness composed of that, which rose destroying themselves, what one thing exists for doing? What he means by those who are happiness composed of that, Tanmayananda Ku, that is, those who are tamayananda, who are happiness composed of, that means happiness, but is composed of Brahman. Um, in other words, those who are Brahman, uh, which rose destroying themselves, means destroying ego, what one thing, what, what one exists for doing. And then he goes on to say, Tane uh, Aladu Anyam Ondrum Ariya. They do not know anything other than themselves. <laughs> Who can conceive their state as like this? That is, with our mind, we cannot we cannot understand their state because they are in the state in which there's no awareness of anything other than themselves. So their state is beyond the mind. So with our mind, we cannot grasp that. If we want to know that state, we have to be that. So we have to turn within and allow ourselves to be destroyed by the tanmayananda, which is our own real nature. And only when, when, when that tanmayananda shines forth, destroying us, and we, we remain at that alone, then only will we understand the state of Bhagavan. Till then, we whatever understanding we have is just uh, ideas, thoughts, and his state is is beyond all thought, beyond mind. Thank you. Okay. And the last question is, uh, you say that group meditation is not recommended, but uh, would you not agree that being in spiritual company helps the mind to go inward? And the Buddhists say that Sangha is very helpful to our practice. Surely the whole point of these satsangs is to spend time practicing together. But what we are doing now is discussing Bhagavan's teachings. These sort of that is discussing with fellow devotees about Bhagavan's teaching can be helpful to us in that it can help us to understand his teachings more deeply. So we can, uh, at the level of sravana, 
listening to his teachings, we can do as a group. At the level of manana, considering his teachings, yes, to a certain extent, we can do as a group. We can, we can, we can share our understanding with others. Um, but at the level of practice, that is the meditation, is turning our attention back within, then uh, so long as we're aware of being in a group, our attention is going outwards. Our aim is to turn our attention within. So uh, these sort of uh, these meetings, discussing Bhagavan's teaching, these are useful for turning our for, for helping us to understand and motivating us to turn within. But the actual turning within, we it's a solitary path. How can we go within with others? Each one of us has to go within ourselves. So really, group meditation has it has no no meaning at all, because we, true the meditation that Bhagavan has taught us is swarupa, what he calls swarupa dhyana. That means meditation on ourselves, on our own, on what we actually are. If we're meditating on what we actually are, that's a state of non-duality. A group is a state of multiplicity where many people. So it's it's. The group of seems to exist only so long as we're looking outwards. Meditation is looking inwards, looking away from the outward appearance to what actually exists within. So it, it's the, the idea of group meditation. It's okay for certain uh, certain types of meditation, certain uh, types of meditation. Group meditation may be appropriate, but for this meditation, the meditation taught by Bhagavad, which is the meditation of turning within and subsiding back into our heart, we cannot do that as a group. And regarding satsanga, Bhagavan has explained, what is satsanga? Sat means being. What is being? We alone are sat. So, as Bhagavan said, Atmasanga alone is satsanga. Atmasanga means be, keeping company with ourselves. Keeping company with ourselves means turning our attention within and, we, and focusing our entire attention on ourselves alone. So that is the best satsanga. So true satsanga is not outward, it's inward. But outward forms of satsanga are useful to the extent that being, they encourage us to try to turn within. And they may help us to understand what it means to turn within. But the, the best satsanga, the truest satsanga, the only real satsanga, is being as we actually are. Associating with our own being. Remaining in the company of our own being. Not rising to come out and to, to see others. I hope that's a clear answer to that question. Uh, yes, uh, I, I still feel that in in you know the way we live our lives in the world today, it is helpful to to be with others. And... Oh yeah, yeah, yes. I mean, everything has its own place, but for going within, that's what I'm saying. For going within, that is a solitary path. Yes. Okay. I I don't say this to 
to put down. I mean, we we all we we live in society. We are social creatures. So long as we rise as ego and take ourselves to be a body, we're a social creature. We have friends, we have companions, we have those we turn to in times of difficulty. Um, we try to help others when they're in difficulties. This is all part of being a a social creature. But what we actually are, we can know only by going within. Okay, thank you. Right, right. Are there any more questions, Shalini? No, no, I think this really should be the last question because otherwise it keeps getting added on, <laughs> which is how important is celibacy in spiritual uh, on the spiritual path? Uh, why did Ramana uh, uh, live as a celibate? Bhagavan said about the, the, the word for celibacy in Sanskrit is brahmacharya. But Bhagavan gave a deeper meaning to that. Brahmacharya is living as Brahman. So Brahman is eternally celibate because it's one without a second. So the true state of celibacy is the state in which we remain as we actually are. So long as we rise as ego, we are having intercourse with so many phenomena, so many thoughts and feelings and emotions. So that is all having intercourse. So that is not true celibacy. True celibacy is turning within and being as we actually are. As far as the physical celibacy is concerned, what Bhagavan said is all the, the, the mode of life of the body is according to Pararabdha. If it's our prarabdha to be a sannyasi, we cannot but be, I mean, if it's our prarabdha to outwardly live the life of a sannyasi, that is the life we will live. If it's our prarabdha to be married, to have children and everything, that's our prarabdha. This is this has got nothing. This is just according to the outward life. But whatever be the outward mode of life, whether we are married and with 10 children or whatever, or whether we are living a, a life of um, of celibacy as a sannyasi or whatever, this is all according to prarabdha. But whatever be our outward mode of life, we are always free to turn within. So Bhagavan didn't actually attach much importance to these, the outward renunciation, the true Bhagavan made it clear, what is the true renunciation? As he says in the final sentence of verse 26 of Uludhanapadu, investigating what this ego is, is giving up everything. That is the true renunciation. So you, we, we can outwardly live the life of celibacy. We can change the color of our cloth. We can be wearing sannyasa clothes. We can change our name and everything. But that doesn't, that's only superficial surface changes. What about what, the change that is required is required within. So long as we rise as ego and identify ourselves as a body, um, it doesn't matter whether that body is a sannyasa or a householder. The identification is not there. There's uh, one thing Bhagavan said in uh, Murugan has recorded this in Kuruvachika Kovai. Only the one who has destroyed ego is the true Brahmin and the true sannyasi. But very hard indeed is the annihilation of ego for those Brahmins who feel I am a Brahmin and those sannyasis who feel I am a sannyasi. Because Brahmins are supposed to be the 
highest caste. So if you feel I am a Brahmin, there's so much attachment, so much pride, so much abhimanam there. If you feel I am a sannyasi, there's a pride in I am a great renunciate. It's better to be humble. Even if you're even if outwardly our life seems to be a worldly life, it's better to live a worldly life humbly than a, a, a seemingly spiritual life proudly. So the, the real renunciation is the inward renunciation. As far as, as I mean, the question about celibacy is referring, generally people are referring to, uh, to sex. Sex in itself is not a problem. It's a biological function, after all. The problem with sex is it, we generally, because we identify ourselves as a body, we most of us have very strong sexual desire. It's because so long as we identify ourselves as a body, it's the nature of the body. It's a, this body is a biological or, or organism, and it's the nature of this biological organism. It these Biological organisms reproduced by sexual uh, means. So we, this sexual desire is almost hardwired into us. So, so long as we identify ourselves as the body, it's, for some people it may be stronger, some people not so strong, but we all, to a greater or lesser extent, have experienced sexual desire, or we have the potential for experiencing sexual desire. We cannot get rid of this except by eradicating ego, the false awareness, I am this body. So Bhagavan is always going to the root of the problem. Bhagavan is not concerned with our actions. He's concerned with us. What, what Bhagavan asks us to do is not to do this or do that or don't do this or don't do that. What he asks us to do is to turn our attention within to see what we actually are. So Bhagavan's teachings are about being, not about doing. So, um, of course, because the, the sexual desire is a very strong desire, it can be an obstacle on the path because it, it sexual desire takes our mind outwards. So long as we allow ourselves to be swayed by that desire, our mind will be going outwards, thinking of things other than ourselves. So in that in that sense, it's an obstacle. It's not the act of sex that is an obstacle. It is the, it's the desire for that is an obstacle. And that desire is there only when we allow our mind to dwell on that. If we turn to whom is this desire? Me. So turn to me. So turn our attention back to that me, who the I who has the sexual desire. That is the way to go beyond it. So ultimately, the true um, celibacy is the state in which we turn our attention within, subside back into our source, and thereby remain as Brahman. That's why Bhagavan said, being as Brahman alone is the true Brahmacharya. Because what's the use of, Bhagavan also said this, what's the use of outwardly living a celibate life, but ha having a desire in the heart? So long as the desire is in the heart, we haven't, it's, it's, um, it, it's, the, the desire is the problem, not the actual whether you're, whether you're, uh, the act is not the problem, it's the desire with which the act is done, or the desire with which the mind dwells on that act that is the problem. <laughs>